0: Happy New Year and welcome everybody to the first pound for pound podcast of the brand new Spanking Year 2023. This is your host, the OGRS, the original great Rob Silver. Today, uh, I will have some thoughts on the latest legal scrap involving Javante Davis. I will give my rundown and my review of a tremendous 115 pound title title unification fight that occurred Saturday morning, New Year's Eve, in Japan between kazuto ioka and joshua franco i will have an extended q a session several questions came in this week i will give my prediction on the aforementioned javante davis's fight versus hector lewis garcia coming up next saturday night january 7th and i will finish the podcast with my historical overview on the 12th greatest fighter of the last forty five years, in my opinion, the real deal, Evander Holyfield. Now, first and foremost, the Javante Davis situation. Last Tuesday he was arrested. Um, his uh the the mother of a young daughter of his called nine one one and accused him of assaulting her. Uh, allegedly he gave her a backhand slap. Now this is allegedly, uh you are innocent until proven guilty. A few days later, she backtracked. I believe it was either Thursday or Friday. She issued a statement saying that she shouldn't have called the police, that there was no physical violence involved, and that she took things out of proportion, that she should have solved this privately. So, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know where this goes. I don't know what florida laws look like as far as she press charges does she drop the charges because in new york state if i am not mistaken a man could be still arraigned even if his wife or his girlfriend or his accused attacked her attacker recants her recancer claims as far as uh accusing the the man of attacking her so i don't know what the laws in florida state we will uh see this come we will see what happens and i'm gonna leave judgment until then um I've been harsh on Javante in the past. So I don't want to jump to conclusions here I do not know what happened. No one knows what happened. What upsets me is that A a ton of media and um How would you say (laughs) how would you call them um amateur lawyers on social media and a Large amount of boxing media has ridiculed javante we need to know what's going on now i know his track record is less than stellar and he is set to go on trial next month i believe february 16th is uh hit and run trial begins so that's something that's hanging over javante said we will see um everybody knows my stance on domestic violence i have zero tolerance for domestic violence i have gotten on javante before when the videotape showed him grab his girlfriend at the time by the neck and yank her out of a out of a i don't know look like a small i don't know what the hell that was some type of a event where there was people around he grabbed her and, and took her out of there and i hated that i hated that it was you don't do that to a woman. I don't care how angry she gets you. You don't do that to a woman. So we we will see and I will as far as this incident, there's no videotapes, I don't know. I don't know. We will have to let the judicial system um take its course and we will see if the charge remains since the girlfriend well, I don't think she was the girlfriend. I think she was the she's the mother of one of his kids. She recant recanted her uh, statement, so we will see what happens with that. Will the authorities in Broward County continue with the investigation? Continue with pressing charges if the woman the the woman who initially brought the charges will not be cooperative or will, will doesn't want to doesn't want to be cooperative because she felt she was in the wrong and not Javante. we will see now january uh, december 31st the final big fight of the year 115 pound unification fight between joshua franco the wba champion and kazuto ioka the wbo champion We've got a lot, we've, the 115 pound division, the super flyweight division is one of the most stacked divisions in boxing, look at the four champions, Ioka, Franco, Franco's brother, Bam Rodriguez, and, uh, the linear champion, Juan Francisco Estrada, four tremendous fighters, and this was a hell of a fight, and I was hoping the winner of this fight could fight Estrada, because, uh. I don't see of course i don't see bam fighting his brother joshua so i was hoping we'd have a clear cut winner so the winner of this fight could fight estrada and unite and and unify another belt as we look to possibly unifying the 115 pound division well for the first seven rounds, Joshua Franco did what he wanted to do. I gave the first round to Ioka as he moved and landed nice counter punches. But from rounds two to seven, Franco, behind that beautiful jab, he had, he exhibited a beautiful jab Saturday in, in Japan. Behind that jab, he was throwing combinations. He was walking Ioka down, and he was landing at will, pressuring Ioka, keeping him on the ropes, Ayoka had some success counter-punching, but he couldn't keep Franco off him. Franco was dominating in, in landed punches and attempted punches from rounds 2 to 7. It was easily Franco's fight from rounds 2 to 7. After 7 rounds, I had Franco winning 6 rounds to 1. Now, I watched this fight several hours after it occurred. I had already known the decision. I knew the decision already. And I'm watching this and I'm like, how did they get that decision if this guy is up six rounds to one on my card? Well, I can see how they could possibly think the decision went the way it went, because from rounds eight, from rounds eight to ten, eight, nine, and ten, it was all Ioka as he moved. He made Franco miss, and he made Franco pay with combination after combination. Beautiful counter-punching by Ayoka. He felt the urgency, and he stepped up. He stepped up. And in round 11, the first half of the round, he continued. But then fatigue set in. Fatigue set in. And then Franco took the second half of the round and i gave a slight edge to franco so i gave franco round 11 even though this was one of those rounds where you could have made a case for an even round but i circled it i don't score even rounds so i circled it as a round in question so you could make an argument that it was seven rounds to four franco or six rounds to five franco going into the 12th round but the 12th round was all franco Ioka was exhausted. He couldn't keep Franco off of him. Franco, closing the fight like a champion, closing the fight like they teach you how to do when you're a championship fighter. He dominated the 12th round, outlanded Ioka, something like two or three to one, and I had my final scorecard, 116-112. Franco, you could make an argument for 115-113. No way in the world Ioka deserved the draw. This fight was a draw. Let me look at the scorecards, ladies and gentlemen, because this was ridiculous. How did they have this fight score to draw? In my opinion, the only round that was a swing round that could have gone either way was the 12th round. I mean, it was the 11th round. Not even the 12th round, it was the 11th round. <sighs> Let me see what the scorecards say. Okay. Okay, two judges had it 114-114, and one judge had Franco winning 115-113. Is this a robbery? I mean, I thought Franco was a clear-cut seven rounds to five, even possibly eight rounds to four. I don't see any of those. From rounds two to seven, I don't see any of those rounds where you could have made a judgment for Ioka. I don't see it. I think Ioka got a hometown draw. And Franco today should be a two-alphabet soup holder of the 115-pound title. Instead, both go back home with their own with, with with the belts they came to the fight with, and once we go back to the drawing board with four 115-pound champions, hell of a fight. Joshua Franco reminds me of fighters like Lupe Pintor and. What was my man's name? He was a great fighter. Oh, man. Oh, shit. Shit, shit, shit. Early signs of dementia. I should know this guy. This guy's a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. He was a 118-pound bantamweight champion for Orlando Canozales. When Orlando Canizales and Lupe tour both won their versions of the 118-pound title, immediately they became better fighters. After Franco won this version of 115-pound fighter, he's become a much better fighter. And he's a tough fight. He's a tough out for Estrada, a rematch with Ioka. And, of course, he will never fight his brother, Bam Gonzalez, who also holds the title at 115 pounds. So uh, congratulations to Joshua Franco. Even though he didn't win, he fought more. He did more than enough to win, in my opinion. And now... On to my prediction for the aforementioned Javante Davis, who's headlining a pay-per-view this Saturday night against Hector Lewis Garcia. Now, Hector Lewis Garcia is a live underdog. He beat the hell out of Chris Colbert. That being said, Javante Davis is a better fighter than uh, Chris Colbert. He's a better boxer than Chris Colbert. He's a better puncher than Chris Colbert. Garcia has a hell of a chin. Do I see a knockout for Tank? No. I see Tank winning a tough 12-round decision. This is going to be an interesting fight to see because is Tank distracted by the actions that occurred in his personal life last week? We will see. Now, if he comes out and blows Hector Lewis Garcia out of there, then um, his intestinal fortitude is off the charts. That means nothing affected him but if he looks lackluster if he looks lackadaisical if he's off and he cannot afford to be off against hector lewis garcia hector lewis garcia is a tough bastard who is going to give as well as he takes so i'm picking tank but ladies and gentlemen it all depends on tank's mindset will he be affected by what occurred in his personal life last week we won't know until main event saturday night and we'll take it from there nfl sunday ticket is now on youtube and youtube tv which means that it just got easier to be an nfl fan even if you live far away like maybe you like the bears but you're hibernating in panthers territory but with nfl sunday ticket your out of market team is never more than a short distance away specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refunds. Subscription auto renews. Now on to my Q&A session. Let me get to it. Hold on one second. Let me get to my questions. All right. Q&A session. Here we go. For those who want their questions answered, ask Rob Silva. Hashtag ask Rob Silva on Twitter. That's the best way to uh, contact me. Or you could also DM me my twitter handle is ask rob silver a hey, um i'm not sorry that's hashtag ask Ross, rob silver is the hashtag to ask questions but you could also dm me at robert silver 5768 on twitter all right the first question from a regular contributor big malcolm x play cousin his question is, Jeron Ennis has now said that if he can't get a fight with Spencer Crawford, he wants Jamel Charlo at 154. I honestly have never been impressed by either of the Charlos. So are you shocked by the smaller guys, Crawford Ennis, challenging Charlo? No, uh Malcolm, I'm not shocked. Terrence Crawford is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Jeron Boots Ennis, I have said over and over and over again, is the next all-time great fighter about to occur, about to have a lengthy reign at 147 pounds once he gets a title opportunity versus either Spence or Crawford. Do I believe Spence or Crawford could beat Charlo? Hell yeah. I think Boots and his could beat anybody at 147 and or 154. Crawford can beat anybody at 147 or 154. Both of them have a legit shot at beating Jamel Charlo. Now Jamel Charlo has had, in my opinion, a hall of fame career, at 154. He's the first undisputed 154 pound champion since Ronald Winky, right? He has fought damn near everybody, at 154. I mean, he has, he has fought a who's who at 154 his entire career. Uh, Charlo recently got hurt. He hurt his hand and so his fight with Tim zoo that was supposed to take place at the end of this month has been postponed. So I don't know what's the status of that fight. There's talks of Tony Harrison taking Charlo's place and fighting zoo for uh the interim and I hate that bullshit. It's coming up in one of the questions. Interim WBO title. We'll see what happens. Um Tony Harrison, the only man to beat Charlo. So, um Tony Harrison more than deserves another shot at either Charlo or for a vacant title if the titles are, are vacated. If any of the titles are vacated. I don't believe in that interim shit. Just make it a, a, a eliminated, eliminated fight. And and Tim Zhu would be stupid to fight Tony Harrison before fighting Jamel Charlo because he's taking a real chance at losing because Tony Harrison is hell for any fighter. And he's and he's never been beaten badly. Every fight he's lost, he was in the fight. Tony Harrison, who's one of the best up-and-coming trainers in the sport as well today. Um, he's done hell of a work with Alicia Baumgartner. So uh, shout-out to super bad Tony, Ta- uh, Tony Harrison. And... um Malcolm, back to your question. Crawford and Ennis could definitely both beat Charlo on a good night, without a doubt, without a doubt, 100%. Okay, on to my next question. The next question is from Carl Bristol. Uh, happy, new year. happy New Year to you, Malcolm, and Happy New Year to Carl, who every week gives me great questions. And his question is just as great this week. If there is a world belt holder, in a division, what the hell are the following belts the alphabet soups have created? Uh, Interim, interim world title, super world title, gold world title, and I don't know what the fuck the WBO GBL is, Uh, global belt? I don't know what the hell the GBL is, but whatever it is, don't mean a hill of beans. Carl, these alphabet soup criminal cartel organizations can only make money off of sanctioning fees, okay? And so they rob the fighters A and the fans B by these mythical titles they create. Interim, Super, Gold, Global. Oh, yeah, the WBO Global. That's what you meant, Global. These titles are bullshit titles. Only to put money in their coffers. That's it. It's the only reason those titles exist. The WBA at one point had in each division a super champion, a regular champion, an interim champion. What the fuck is that? Three world champions in one alphabet soup sanctioning body? Are you kidding me? The WBC has... The, re- the world champion they recognize, an interim world champion, and a franchise world champion? Are you fucking kidding me? This is all a way to generate revenue and steal money from the fighters. That's it. That's all it is. And I'm sick of it. So that answers your question, Carl. I look forward to your next question. Carl's a good brother, man. Um, Follow him on Twitter, underscore shoe underscore B underscore shoe S H O E underscore the lower, the, uh, the letter B underscore shoe underscore B Carl Bristol on Twitter. Now from a long time, listen, man, I go back with this brother from Australia. Damn near a decade. The dude has the same type of taste of women that I do. He loves Trini women. And I love Trini women and Trini as in Trinity, trinity women from trinidad not tranny i don't play that bullshit he loves trini women women from trinidad and blue eyed boy writes you think the career of a tia female is over as a legitimate legitimate top tier elite fighter yes in my opinion, Teofimo Lopez will never beat another great fighter the rest of his career. His win against Lomachenko will be the last time he beats a world class elite fighter because 135 or 140, in my opinion, he won't beat Regis Progre, he won't beat Ryan Garcia. He won't beat Jose... Uh, uh, Jose Luis Ramirez. Jose Ramirez, rather. Not Jose Luis... He long. He will not beat Jose Ramirez. He will not beat Regis Pro Grace. He won't beat Josh Taylor. He won't beat Gary Antoine Russell. He won't defeat Devin Haney. He cannot beat... uh, He cannot beat Shakur Stevenson. He can't beat Tank Davis. He can't beat any of those guys. So... Is his career over? Uh, Monetarily is not, because he could be used as a stepping stone by all those fighters. But at the elite level, world championship level, he's done. Stick a fork in him. His last two fights, he's been hideous against run-of-the-mill opposition. No. George Cambosas took his soul the night he kicked. Teofimo Lopez is asked. Great question, Blue Eye. Give me more, man. I, it, the the conversations we've had over the year have been great. I would love for you to give me more questions. Now, this is a non-boxing-related question by my, my good friend, Gringo. Gringo M.A. Steve, what's up, Steve? He gave me the, the Hall of Fame ballot and he asked me, who do I got on this ballot as deserving of the baseball hall of fame looking through this ballot carlos beltran despite the controversy his last year in houston which led to him getting fired by the new york mets before he managed one game as their manager carlos beltran let me keep looking at this list andrew jones jeff kent manny ramirez alex rodriguez All right, so let me so let me see. Let me let me go over again. I tell you right now, Beltron. Beltron. Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez, Gary Sheffield, Omar Fisgal and Billy Wagner on this list all belong. I would vote for all of those guys. I believe all of them belong in Hurlfield. I know Sheffield A-Rod and Ramirez are not going to get in because they have the steroid uh cloud hanging over their heads the, the reason why Clemens and Bonds did not get in during their years of eligibility they both in my opinion belong there's a name missing from this list and I think he was eliminated years ago there's two names on this list that i would love to see in the hall of fame that belong in the hall of fame that were eliminated almost immediately and i do not know why well i know why carlos delgado and albert bell carlos delgado and albert bell did nothing but put up monster numbers their entire careers i'm not going to mention their numbers look it up yourself uh google is your friend albert bell If I'm not mistaken, averaged 124 RBIs a season in 10 years. Okay. Carlos Beltran was one of the best hitting first basemen in the history of the sport. I believe Beltran, I mean, Carlos Delgado. I said Beltran, my mistake. Carlos Delgado, one of the greatest hitting first basemen of all time. Look at his numbers. I believe the reason Delgado's not in is because he was Colin Kaepernick before Colin Kaepernick, and he was Mahmoud Abdul Rauf after Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. Carlos De- Delgado pro- st- protested the illegal bombings by the U.S. military in Vieques, Puerto Rico, by not standing for the national anthem, by staying in the dugout. And Major League Baseball got on his ass, the media got on his ass. Delgado never backed down, though, and he told the press why he was protesting the U.S. National Anthem because of what was going on in Vieques, and finally that bombing stopped in Vieques, and when when Delgado came to New York Mets, he began to stand for the National Anthem, but the writers have long memories, they don't forget anything, especially when you're an athlete of color. Carlos Delgado being a black Puerto Rican A very dark skinned Puerto Rican Albert Bell is not in because the media Hated him, Uh, Albert Bell was an asshole I'll agree, Albert Bell Was a son of a bitch But Albert Bell was one of the greatest Hitters that ever lived If it wasn't for I believe A hip injury that ended his career Albert Bell would have put up Monster numbers, he put up monster numbers for both The Chicago White Sox and Cleveland Indians He was a beast Albert Bell, one of the few hitters in baseball history to have 50 home runs and 50 doubles in one season Ridiculous And he was robbed of the 1995 MVP Because the riders loved Mo Vaughn They hated Albert Bell And he was denied the Hall of Fame for the same reason. Albert Bell and Carlos Delgado belong in the Hall of Fame. Andrew Jones belong in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the five greatest defensive center fielders I've ever seen. And Omar Vizcal belongs in the Hall of Fame because in my opinion, he's the second greatest defensive shortstop I've ever seen. The one guy that's above him, that's above everybody that ever played at shortstop is, of course, in the Hall of Fame in the Wizard of Oz, Ozzy Smith. So Gringo Steve Thanks for that great question. And shout out to Will Davis, who's a huge Albert Bell fan. I agree with you, Albert. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. Now, on to my, I believe this is my yeah, my final question. And this is a great question. It's going to take a minute for me to answer this question. This is a phenomenal question by my man, Jotty. Jotty asks, how do you think Aaron Pryor would have done against the three of the four kings that fought at welterweight. So he's talking about Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, and Thomas Hearns. Aaron Pryor beat Thomas Hearns in the amateurs, but ladies and gentlemen, Thomas Hearns was a different fighter in the amateurs than he was in the pros. In the amateurs, Thomas Hearns was a punch and Jody hitter. He was hit and run. He had maybe 18 knockouts in his entire, in over 200 to 300 amateur fights. It wasn't until he became a pro, a pro that Emanuel Stewart perfected Thomas's punching power, and also he grew. He was a very skinny kid as a, as a amateur. He grew into his power, and he used his leverage to have one of the greatest right crosses in boxing history. Aaron Pryor had a tendency to get hit by the right hand, and on three occasions he was dropped in the first round by by a right hand. Um, Duan Johnson and Antonio Cervantes famously knocked him down in the first rounds, a fight that Pryor got off the canvas and mutilated both fighters. And Alexis Arguello landed what he considered the greatest right hand of his career that knocked Pryor's head back like a bobblehead doll. But Pryor, who's had, who has a sensational chin, recuperated right away. He... he he, if he was hurt, it was for a split second. None of those guys have the power Thomas Hearns has. If Thomas Hearns hits Aaron Pryor with the same right hand that Dewan Johnson, Antonio Cervantes, and especially Alexis Arguello landed, they'll be cutting him off the off the canvas like they did Roberto Duran. Now, not to say it would be easy because Pryor would put a lot of pressure, but there's two things against Pryor. Tendency to get get hit by a right, and he is six inches. He was six inches shorter than Hearns in their respective primes. Pryor was five foot seven. Tommy six foot one. Now, for Pryor to win, he'd have to smother Tommy's power, go to the body, and wear Tommy down. He'd have to, cause Thomas Hearns was one of the greatest fighters within the first five rounds in boxing history. Pryor would have to do like Sugar Ray Leonard did. Get Hearns tired late in the fight and then go to the body and then stop him late or do like Iran Barkley did or Marvin Hagler did, which is catch Hearns. But you see, that's the difference. Hagler and Iran Barkley, much taller than Aaron Pryor, much bigger than Aaron Pryor physically. Pryor never fought at welterweight. He was a junior welterweight his entire career, except for the last couple of fights of his career when he was a half-blind crack addict. So I don't see Aaron Pryor beating Thomas Hearns. Now, he has a chance, but Hearns' left jab, right cross, 6-inch height advantage, and over 10-inch reach advantage would be huge obstacles for Aaron Pryor to overcome. Jody has a podcast, I believe the name is called Versus, where and you could do a you could you do a do a a Google search an Apple podcast search. Type in Aaron Pryor versus Sugar Ray Leonard. He did an extensive podcast where he broke down a fight between Pryor and Leonard, and you know what? I agree with Jody. I think Aaron Pryor beats Sugar Ray Leonard in a 15-round war. I see both men getting knocked down, just like Johnny mentioned. I see back and forth, and I see Pryor coming out on top in a brutal, brutal war. That that would be an easy trilogy. I could see them fighting three times because Pryor and Leonard would be evenly matched in a fight. Roberto Duran at 147. The Duran that beat Sugar Ray Leonard, all right. Let's 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 let's, let's uh, yeah. Let's put it at one forty-seven. The Duran that beat Sugar Ray Leonard would be a tough out for Pryor, but Pryor showed in his fight against Alexis Arguello that he could box at range and 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 use the jab and throw combinations. He's quicker than Duran, and I could see him winning a fifteen-round decision by outboxing Duran. Like Sugar Ray Leonard did the second fight So Gun to my head Pryor beats Duran in a tough fight But a convincing decision He wins a very fight A very close fight that could go either way against Sugar Ray Leonard And I think Thomas's Right hand The Motor City Cobra, the Hitman's right cross Will be too much Because we all know That Aaron Pryor Was susceptible To that right hand oh so thanks all of you great people for the great questions and now we go on to my 12th greatest fighter of the last 45 years the real deal evander holyfield and i begin I still remember the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympic Games like it was yesterday. The Soviet bloc nations boycotted the Games in retaliation for the United States boycotting the 1980 Moscow Summer Games, which, minus the perennial great Cuban boxing team, enabled the American team to win nine gold medals. They should have won ten if not for the erroneous call by the referee during the semi semifinal bout Causing Evander to settle for a bronze medal. In my father's opinion, Holyfield was, alongside Pernell Whitaker and Meldrick Taylor, the best boxers of the 84 games. My father felt that Holyfield was going to have an illustrious pro career. My father's prediction was more than on the money. It was so accurate that the end result occurred in Holyfield becoming the 12th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. In only his 12th pro fight on July 12, 1986, Holyfield challenged WBA Cruiserweight Champion Dwight Muhammad Quarry in his very first world title opportunity. Quarry had a style eerily similar to Joe Frazier. He was an aggressive fighter who constantly bobbed and weaved his head to make him difficult to hit. At 5'7", he was already undersized for a fighter at 175 or 195 pounds. His bobbing and weaving made him a much smaller and more difficult target to hit. Quarry was attempting to take the less than experienced Holyfield into deep waters. The first eight rounds were eerily similar to the Ali Frazier thriller in Manila. Holyfield had never gone past eight rounds before and was fatigued going into round nine. Quarry was fatigued as well as he was no longer bobbing and weaving. Rounds nine through 13 saw both men taking turns landing several punishing shots on each other. No matter how hard Holyfield hit Quarry, the champion would roll right back. Quarry had never been knocked down in his career and he was showing in this fight just how hard it was to penetrate his skull. This was the first fight in which Holyfield who eventually would go down as having one of the greatest chins of all time proved that he had a great chin as well. After the end of the 13th round, we both thought that Holyfield had the edge going into the last two rounds because he was landing more often in the harder punches. Quarry's out In round 14 dramatically increased And Holyfield took advantage by landing A fusillade of punches to both The head and body Quarry was completely exhausted and was unable to avoid The bulk of the shots coming his way Despite the fact that he was landing At will, Holyfield was still unable To to hurt the Granite Chin champion Quarry, a testament of his Lion-sized heart, came back strong And outfought Holyfield in the 15th round Both men hammered each other With one missile after another But it was Quarry who landed more often The fans in Atlanta gave both men a standing ovation. They cheered even louder when their hometown hero, Holyfield, won a split decision and his first world title. Holyfield would go on to completely clean out the cruiserweight division over the next two years, culminating in him becoming the first undisputed champion in the division's less than a decade-long history after destroying Ricky Parker and Carlos DeLeon, Carlos DeLeon, and capturing the IBF and WBC versions of the world title. After his April 9th, 1988 destruction of De Leon, Holyfield abdicated his cruiserweight uh, titles and moved up to heavyweight to begin his build to a super fight against the reigning heavyweight champion and most electric boxer in the division since Muhammad Ali, the seemingly indestructible Mike Tyson. After four consecutive wins over heavyweight contenders Pinklin Thomas, Michael Dokes, Allison Rodriguez, and Alex Stewart, Holyfield earned the number one ranking in the WBA, WBC, and IBF rankings. The build for a super fight versus the undisputed Mike Tyson had already begun. All Tyson had to do was dispose of forty-to-one underdog Buster Douglas. Well, you know what happened. So instead of fighting Tyson, Holyfield Douglas Holyfield fought Douglas on October 25, 1990, for Douglas' undisputed world title. I took my father to see the fight on closed circuit at New York City's historic Beacon Theater. My father at, fo- at first thought this would be a very difficult fight for Holyfield to win because he loved the way Douglas fought against Tyson. Pop felt Douglas looked like a young Larry Holmes in that fight and the way he moved and popped his jab. However, when we saw that Douglas was a flabby two hundred and forty six pounds the night of his fight versus Holyfield, fifteen pound heavier, fifteen pounds heavier than the night he knocked out Tyson, my father quickly changed his opinion. He told me that no fighter that out of shape could defeat a hungry, great fighter like Holyfield. The first two rounds were all Holyfield as Douglas fought very listless. Holyfield was out jabbing the taller champion at will and landing his signature combinations as, as well. A minute into round three, Douglas made a novice mistake by attempting a right uppercut from the outside. Holyfield easily slipped the punch and countered with a picture-perfect right cross that dropped Douglas. Douglas sat, sat on the canvas like a wounded warhorse, unable to get up. Evander Holyfield was now the heavyweight champion of the world. Buster immediately retired from boxing. After defeating former heavyweight champion George Foreman in a classic title fight, Holyfield signed Tyson what was the most highly anticipated heavyweight title fight since Larry Holmes' June 1982 one-sided beating of Jerry Cooney. After Holyfield was able to absorb Foreman's iconic punching power, my father told everyone who would listen that Holyfield would outclass and knock out Tyson. He even bet upwards of $500 on Holyfield. Unfortunately, the fight was postponed due to a mysterious shoulder injury Tyson suffered just weeks before their November 8th, 1991 fight was scheduled. Instead, Holyfield defended against Burke Cooper and found himself in serious trouble early before Holyfield finished him off in the seventh round. After a lopsided 12-round decision went over another legend in Larry Holmes, the 30-year-old champion would next defend his title on November 13th against 25-year-old Riddick Bo, one of the most talented big men the sport had ever seen. Both my father and I agreed that Bo was too big and too powerful for Holyfield to defeat. What we didn't know was just how much a Holyfield's mentality would make this one of the greatest fights in heavyweight boxing history. Bo had the best jab in the division. We expected him to use it to control Holyfield and land everything else off of it. But in round one, it was Holyfield who was moving and landing the more effective jab. That all came to an end in round two. Rounds two through four saw the two heavyweights stay inside and land one bomb after the other. My father and I were shocked that at six foot five, how great of an inside fighter Bo was against the three inches shorter Evander Holyfield. Bo landed the harder and more significant punches, especially his right upper cup and left hook. Holyfield's bombs were not moving Bo. Bo was hurting Holyfield, but Holyfield's warrior mentality kept them coming. Holyfield went back to boxing and utilizing his jab in the fifth round. Bo looked very v- fatigued in the fifth and, w- and was outworked. Bo came back strong in the sixth as Holyfield was now fatigued as well, and the fight stayed inside. Both men, visibly tired, took turns in round seven through nine, landing one vicious combination after another. After nine rounds, both fighters' right eyes were dangerously close to being closed. Bo started round round 10 by by landing a stiff jab and two pulverizing right uppercuts that that had Holyfield in deep trouble. Bo Bo then landed over 35 consecutive shots to Holyfield's head and body. I could not believe that Holyfield stood up against this brutal onslaught. After his barrage of punches, Bo had punched himself out. Still hurt, Holyfield stunned Bo with a right uppercut of his own and then again with a tremendous right cross. The round ended with both men landing huge combinations at the bell. It was one of the greatest rounds in the history of boxing. Holyfield jumped on Bo right away in round 11, sensing that Bo was still hurt. Holyfield walked into a crushing left hook that, stag- that staggered him, and seconds later, Bo landed a club in right hand that finally knocked the champion down. Holyfield got up and was very hurt and tired. Bo decided not to take a chance and instead used his jab to keep Holyfield at bay for the rest of the 11th and entire 12th round. Bo won a decisive unanimous decision and now was the undisputed champion. A year later, they would fight each other in a rematch simply known as the Fan Man Fight. On November 6, 1993, Holyfield outpointed Bo in another tremendous battle that unfortunately was upstaged by James Miller's asinine stunt. Miller, aka the fan man, parachuted in the audience midway through round seven, and for his criminal act, he was justifiably battered and assaulted by Bo's security team. Miller's stunt resulted in Bo's pregnant wife fainting and having to be rushed to the hospital. Despite being worried about his wife's health, Bo outfought Holdfield the rest of the fight after it resumed. It wasn't enough to overcome. Holyfield's early lead lead as as Evander Holyfield became a two-time World Heavyweight Champion. Holyfield's reign would be short-lived. Five months later, he would be out-hustled and losing a decision to Michael Mora. Amidst an allegation that Holyfield's lethargic performance that evening was due to being diagnosed with a bad heart, Holyfield briefly retired from boxing. 13 months later, Holyfield returned to the ring returned to the ring and narrowly outpointed Ray Mercer in a 10 round war. Then on November 4th, 1995, he engaged in the rubber match of his trilogy with Bo. In another war between the two rivals, Bo stopped Holyfield in the eighth round. At this point of time, for all intents and purposes, my father and I felt the the 33 year old Holyfield was done. A year later, who could have guessed That it would be the 29 year old bull that would be completely shot and not the 34 year old holyfield after looking completely shop worn in a pedestrian stoppage of undersized bobby chez in the spring of 1996 holyfield finally got an opportunity to fight tyson five years after they had originally signed to fight don king felt that holyfield was no longer a threat and would be an easy night for Holyfield before a possible matchup with Lennox Lewis. Either my, even my father agreed that Holyfield was going to be a sacrificial lamb. Everyone felt that a Tyson blowout was unavoidable. Everyone but Holyfield. On the night of November 9th, 1996, Holyfield turned back the clock in completely dominating the WBA champion Tyson. Holyfield dissected Tyson with a superior left jab and inside punching. At the end of the 10th round, Tyson staggered to his corner after after being batted throughout the round. A little over 30 seconds into round 11, referee Mitch Halpin stopped the fight, and the 25 to 1 underdog Holyfield was now a three time heavyweight world champion. He began to set his sights on once again becoming the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. On June 28th, Holyfield and Tyson Oh, on June 28th of the following year, Holyfield and Tyson fought the rematch, which garnered a den record. Most pay-per-view buys. Despite being the most anticipated rematch in many, many years, my father and I were convinced that Tyson had absolutely no shot at defeating Holyfield. Rounds one and two saw the continuation of Holyfield's, Holyfield's domination of Tyson. Finally, during the middle of round three, Tyson committed one of the most heinous acts in boxing history. He bit Holyfield on both ears, causing Tyson not only to be disqualified, but suspended from boxing for a year. My father felt Tyson's frustration motivated him to get disqualified on purpose. Tyson, king in their camp, all blamed the biting on Tyson being a recipient of several Holyfield headbutts. My father laughed at this excuse. The fact remained that Holyfield owned Tyson, and deep down inside, Tyson knew Holyfield had his number. Despite having to have reconstructive surgery on both ears, Holyfield fought just four months later, in a unification title fight against his former conqueror, IBF champion Michael Mora. This time, Holyfield, at 35, looked years younger than their first encounter three years earlier. Holyfield gained a huge measure of in revenge in handing Mora a thrashing so severe that Mora quit in his, round after, in his corner after the end of round eight. Only business left for Holyfield to deal was with the WBC champion, Lewis. I took my father to see Holyfield and Lewis on March 13, 1999 in Masters Square Garden to see who would emerge as the first undisputed heavyweight champion of the world in six years. To the shock of both my father and I, the judges scored the fight a draw. Lewis was totally dominant throughout the fight by keeping Holy Fields inside fighting at bay with his brilliant and punishing left jab. As soon as ring announcer Jimmy Lennon announced the fight as a draw, my father and I stormed out of MSG in a huff. In a huff. It was the worst decision either of us had ever attended. Another dark night in boxing's sordid history. Eight months later, the judges finally got it right when Lewis won via decision, and for the first time in seven years, boxing had an undisputed heavyweight champion. In my opinion, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Holyfield to gracefully retire from the sport at the age of uh, of 36. Incredulously, Evander would fight for another 12 years. During those 12 years, Holyfield took unnecessary punishment while trying to convince promoters and state commissions that God had ordained he would once again become undisputed heavyweight champion. In those last 12 years, Holyfield fought 16 times and lost six times, which resulted in his final record being a not-too-impressive 44 wins, 10 losses, and 2 draws with 29 knockouts. It also resulted in damaging what should have been a top-10 ranking amongst fighters I've seen of the last 45 years. Despite fighting way past its prime, Holyfield's accomplishments, which including being the first fighter to become both the undisputed cruiserweight and heavyweight champion, and the resurrection of his career that resulted in two victories over Tyson, cannot be ignored. These accomplishments alone justify his ranking as my 12th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, it was my pleasure to talk to you great people. Until next time, be blessed and be a blessing. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.